Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Okay, good morning and welcome to the program, Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you company on this Tuesday. It is the 12th day of July. All thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. We are live around Australia on the iHeartRadio platform on starterfm.com.au and of course on TuneIn and a Prawncast podcast that'll drop a little later. Now, I want to get straight into things this morning. Of course, I'll go through some of the big news stories of the last 24 hours, but what I want to do right off the bat is speak to the New South Wales opposition because this story is red hot at the moment, and, of course, it involves the former New South Wales Deputy Premier, John Barillaro. Now, the Upper House inquiry that's investigating the controversial appointments into this trade gig that Mr Barillaro finally rejected last week, the half a million dollar trade gig, the appointment that, uh, well, has been so mired in controversy. Well, yesterday, the inquiry heard from a woman called Jenny West. Now, she was originally offered the US trade job only for it to be rescinded and given to Mr Barillaro. While a host of documents relating to the appointment process behind the senior trade position were released last week under a parliamentary order, the government is now attempting to keep others private, arguing they would prejudice international relations in Australia. There we go. So the government right now is refusing to make public several documents relating to the process surrounding Mr Barillaro's plum appointment to this US trade posting. All right, well, let's talk about it with the New South Wales Opposition Treasury spokesman, Daniel Mookie. Welcome to the program, Daniel. You? Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Uh, first time I've spoken to you on the new program, and, gee, a lot has happened, uh, I think, since you and I uh, last had a conversation, and we seem to be circling back to the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales yet again in John Barillaro. Uh, I mean, just astonishing evidence is now starting to appear at this upper house inquiry into uh, this trade role in uh, the United States. What can you tell me, Daniel? Well, i got to say, we, we heard some extraordinary evidence yesterday from the woman who was originally offered the job of being New South Wales's trade commissioner to New York, but then had that offer withdrawn uh, and from her and then was then told at the same time that that she was then going to be slated for redundancy. And what's so extraordinary about this is that uh, Miss West, uh, the public servant here, uh, tells us that when she's informed that she's not going to be getting the role, she's told the job is going to be a present for someone else. And this was back in October last year. And lo and behold, uh, in middle of June, we find out that the person who actually is in fact gifted the role is John Barillaro and it's just extraordinary to hear such an allegation and I think anyone who was watching the proceedings yesterday would be entitled to ask whether or not there is something rotten in the state of New South Wales. 
Well, everybody from uh, Chris Minns down is starting to question exactly how this came about, Daniel. And, uh, of course, now uh, we have the Upper House Inquiry. Um, uh, my understanding is the uh, is the Premier's own department doing an investigation into this as well. Is that still happening? Or uh, The Premier ordered a review, a review. into the process, uh, mm. which is still ongoing. Okay. Uh, but I would just sort of say to the Premier that I don't think his review has the ability to force people to give evidence under oath. I don't think it gives uh, the ability of that reviewer to compel people to turn up with documents. And I think, therefore, that uh, we don't need uh, a, a review into whether all the I's were dotted and all the T's crossed. Uh, what we need is some truth here about how this could all happen under Mr Perrottet's watch. Because the other clear point in all this is that this all, all these shenanigans coincide with the resignation of Gladys Berejiklian, the resignation yes. of John Barillard himself, and then the appointment of Mr. Perrottet as the Premier and Mr. Ayres as the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party. And I do think that the it's not just a case of a bureaucracy gone wrong here. We the, Our political leaders have very serious questions to answer. Two, I do think Premier Perrottet needs to explain why he agreed to allow these positions to be turned into political appointments. And I do think Minister Ayres needs to explain why he seems to have had such close and ongoing involvement in uh, the process that eventually leads to the appointment of Mr Barillara. Well, the Minister for Western Sydney, Stuart Ayres, yesterday um, he told media that um, the claims made by Miss West in relation to a, quote, present for somebody, uh, well, he claims that they're nonsense. Well, all I'd say is having asked Miss West myself, yeah. uh, Miss West uh, produced... Uh, a file note of that conversation that she wrote within 20 minutes of the conversation taking place, for which she then sent it to her lawyers. And that was before the world had even heard that John Barillara was somehow likely to get the position. And I've got to say, it's pretty rare that you find a person who has a conversation as sensational as that. And then within 20 minutes of hearing those extraordinary words, this was job was to be a present for someone, yeah. had the good sense to write a note immediately about what was said to her. Well, you can un- I- yeah, sorry, you can understand, Daniel, her, uh, her ultimate disappointment in having the role rescinded. I mean, she received, didn't she, not uh, a congratulatory text and whatnot from uh, the Premier of the time uh, in Gladys she- Berejiklian. Well, she she received a congratulatory text from the head of investment in New South Wales, which yeah. included the note um, in which Gladys Berejiklian herself uh, signs off on having uh, on the appointment. Yeah, and if I understand from Miss West's perspective, she she has done nothing wrong here. She put herself up for a job. She went through a rigorous independent selection process. She subjected herself to seven separate background checks. She was interviewed by a panel that included the head of the public service. She going got to get offered the job. Mm-hmm. And then within the span of being uh, one month of being offered the job, has the job taken from her. And then equally is told that her current job uh, is no longer a sure bet either, and then she's made redundant in a matter of months. And I think any human being uh, in that process would uh, be entitled to feel like they've been hard done by. But I also Mm. think that so many of your listeners um, would have put themselves through a process in which it turns out it may or may not have been nicked. 
And I think a lot of people who have gone through these type of job applications before only to find out that it's gone to the mate of a decision maker um, would look at these events with disgust. And I think that, you know, Miss West has behaved amicably well um, given the way in which she's been treated. Was she sidelined from the government after um, her job was made redundant? Um, because my understanding is that she tried to obviously uh, make further inquiries as to why all of a sudden not only was she made redundant from her current job, but she obviously had the other offer rescinded. Uh, nobody. My understanding is that nobody from uh, from the public service and those uh, that make the appointments bothered to uh, to return her calls or speak to her. In fact. To she was essentially sidelined. Well, she certainly raised a complaint with the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, and she wrote quite a detailed email which she produced to the Upper House uh, yesterday. And what she also said was that she never heard back um, from the Secretary of the Department and she never heard back from anybody else about uh, the concerns that she had raised, and instead she was given a redundancy notice. What's even more extraordinary about this, Marcus, is that just within, she was paid out 38 weeks, which is her statutory entitlement under yeah. law. Um, but then within the same 38 pe week period, an almost identical job, an almost identical level is created. And then Miss West has to see effectively her old job for which she was made redundant, re-advertised and filled by someone else within months of uh, being told that there was no need for the role to continue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many questions need to be asked, but it's a little difficult because my understanding as well, uh, Daniel, is that the state government, uh, the Perrottet government, is refusing to make public several documents relating to the process surrounding John Barillaro's appointment to this US trade posting, claiming the papers would threaten national security, for goodness sake, and damage the state's relationship with the Commonwealth if these documents were produced. I mean, how on earth are you supposed to hold a, a fully transparent upper house inquiry when documents aren't being produced by the Premier? I think it's an absurd argument that the Premier's department here is making, and I think that it shows the length to which this government will go after 12 years in office to effectively cover up their actions. And look, I'm prepared to say that Australia and New South Wales um, have survived crises with the United States and with uh, Great Britain of course we far have. more yes. serious than revelations about how Mr Perrottet's government appointed two trade commissioners. Equally, I'm prepared to say that the, I'm confident that New South Wales's relations with the Commonwealth mm. um, will continue unaffected by the public having the right to see these documents. Well, because absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Upper House is doing important work here, but to be very clear here, I think the public are looking at all these shenanigans and they want their questions answered. Well, I mean, to claim privilege is one thing, uh, but to effectively say, no, you can't produce them because uh, of national security issues, I don't think, to be perfectly frank, um, the average New South Wales taxpayer gives a continental about any privilege. They want to know exactly how this occurred and why we are effectively paying out uh, public servants, as in Miss West's case, and then, you know, by all accounts, offering a job that she was initially uh, slated for to a, a former uh, MP and Deputy Premier. I mean, that's, you know, you're right when you say something's rotten. 
Yeah, and I've got to say, I mean, I think that the public is going to be looking at this and thinking, well, this is the type of behaviour that has yeah, it takes place in a 12-year-old government. And yeah. my own concern is, is, look, if they get four more years, if this is the type of behaviour that they're engaging in now, imagine what it's going to be like in four more years. Well, um, <clears throat> I guess there's still a little bit of time. What next uh, in this inquiry? What's uh, what's expected to, to happen over the coming days? I mean, the government will filibuster and uh, obfuscate as much as they can, uh, but essentially there needs to be an answer here, doesn't there, and a finding from this Upper House inquiry, Daniel? But it does, and look, the Upper House inquiry goes on. Uh, we, there will be a hearing next week. Uh, we do, certainly as an opposition, we want to hear now from the people who are involved in uh, effectively implementing Minister Barilaro's instruction to turn these into political appointments. Yeah. We want to hear from some of the public servants who are involved in that process, and we also want to hear from some of the advisors who are in Mr Barilaro's office as he went about turning these public service appointments into political appointments. That Can you call on John Barilaro himself? Can you call... Um, can the, Does the Upper House inquiry have the power and the remit to call on the Deputy Premier to give evidence and others? The the former Deputy Premier, yes, we do. I beg your um, pardon, the former Deputy Premier. And, and what about Stuart Ayres? Well, because Mr Barilaro is no longer a member of the New South Wales Parliament, he can be called. Uh, but okay. we don't uh, have the power to compel a member of the Legislative Assembly to come to an Upper House inquiry. We certainly will be making an invitation <laughs> to Minister Ayres at the appropriate time to tell sure. his version of events. Mm -hmm. But it's up to him as to whether he wants to come. But his name um, keeps popping up, Daniel. Oh, I mean, look, all the evidence we heard last week when the committee met and we heard this morning, sorry, yesterday morning, yeah. uh, was uh, points to the uh, ongoing and close involvement of Minister Ayers or his office in these processes. And to be clear here, like, I mean, the other uh, fact that we've learnt over the weekend was that Minister Ayers was given a briefing note saying that Jenny West was offered the job and he also signed that briefing note. Mm. We also know that he was in that cabinet meeting in which they decided to turn it into political appointments, but for some reasons unknown to us, he unilaterally decided not to continue on with that decision. And we also now know that uh, there was some form of a conversation between him and his secretary that led to the secretary saying to Ms West that the job was a present for someone else. So mm. I do think Stuart Ayres has some serious questions to answer. I know that the committee probably will want to ask him that, those questions. The opposition certainly does, yes. but ultimately it's up for the Mr. Ayers as to whether or not he wishes to come to the inquiry. We can't force him. We'd strongly yeah. encourage him to. And we'd say that, look, just come and tell us your version of events. Absolutely. All right, just before I let you go, Daniel, uh, of course, you are the effective opposition treasurer. Um, no doubt you would have been pleased in the about turn on the $25 million that was proposed to, <laughs> to spend on a flagpole and uh, infrastructure to put the Aboriginal flag 24-7 on the Harbour Bridge. Of course, it was announced late on the weekend that the Aboriginal flag will replace the New South Wales flag. So effectively, it's just a changing of the flag and no cost, no exorbitant, ridiculous bureaucratic cost to the New South Wales taxpayer. Oh, I think it's a it's a welcome decision. We certainly said that uh, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Labor, that we shouldn't be spending $25 million building the world's most expensive flagpole. Um, we're glad now that the government has seen some common sense here. I think yeah. most people... I had my own... Uh, 
Many, many people come up to me on the street, volunteer to do it for a lot less than $25 million. So I definitely think that this is a common sense outcome, but I also think that by G, I mean, how did this get through the process? Why is it that the Premier managed to give this a tick and allocated $25 million? I do think that it's a good sign that the government has stopped caring about the value of the public's dollar. Yep. Daniel, it's great to talk to you, mate. I'm glad we've caught up again. Uh, We will chat soon, no doubt, and uh, let's... uh, keep this New South Wales government to account. That's what it's all about. And, um, you know, hopefully the Upper House inquiry into how uh, the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales was offered a plum trade role uh, for, you know, at half a million dollars, uh, taxpayers, uh, you know, money. And it's a, <laughs> it's a great job. Um, and effectively, what we don't want to be seeing is you know, jobs for the boys and favouritism uh, for political mates. And, and I think hopefully we can get to the bottom of this and um, effectively the uh, former Deputy Premier can perhaps move on with his life outside of the public service and as far away from government as possible. Thank you, Marcus. And of course, we'll uh, keep doing our job and I'm always happy to come on and explain what we're up to. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Tuesday. It is the 12th day of July and we're live around Australia here on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and on the podcast, all thanks to our friends at Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Let's move to some other news now and I see Mark Latham has put his head up above the parapet. Uh, Maybe he's feeling a little unloved or a bit irrelevant. But for some reason, he's become the latest politician to slam Prime Minister Anthony Albanese for his overseas travels, accusing him of neglecting pressing, pressing issues here in Australia. The One Nation New South Wales leader branded the Prime Minister Aeroflot Albo. Uh Uh, adding to Mr Albanese's inventory of nicknames that include Airbus Albo and Albo Overseasy. Now, Mr Latham has joined opposition MPs Dan Tehan and Angus Taylor, who've been openly critical of the Prime Minister spending one-third of his time overseas. Now, Mr Latham took to Facebook yesterday in a, a bit of a rant where he said, there's been a lot of comment about Anthony Albanese's absence from Australia. And on he went writing that clearly during the election campaign, when he said very little about foreign policy, he had in mind, if he won, to get overseas as quickly as possible and rub shoulders with the global political elites. Well, we know that Anthony um, Albanese has travelled to Japan, Indonesia, Spain, France and the Ukraine to meet world leaders since he was voted into power on May the 21st. Now, his quad security meeting in Japan was justified, as is his latest trip to Fiji to meet the Pacific Island leaders who are being courted by China. That's what Mark Lotham uh, wrote yesterday. But he's criticised his visits to Spain, France, NATO, the Ukraine and Indonesia, saying that they were an indulgence, especially the political point scoring exercise with President Macron to rub it into Scott Morrison over the submarines contract. So Mr Latham's now urging the Prime Minister to remain in Australia and address several issues on home soil. Uh, Mark Latham continued to write, Australia faces serious challenges, high inflation, rising interest rates, the housing affordability crisis, problems with energy security, labour shortages and huge budget debt and deficits. 
Now, the Prime Minister should be at his desk in Canberra, wrote Mr Latham, dealing with these issues instead of circumnavigating the globe for photo opportunities. All right, well, we know Mr Albanese has previously labelled the new nicknames cheap shots and vowed they would not deter him from making future trips overseas. He said last week, I've got a job to do, and my job is to represent Australia. I didn't decide the election would be May the 21st, just a couple of days before the quad leaders meeting. So there we go. He went on to say, should I have not met President Biden, the Prime Minister of Japan and the Prime Minister of India? Well, of course I should have. Should I have not gone to the NATO summit in Madrid? Should I have not repaired the relationship with France and advanced a trade deal between Australia and Europe that will create jobs and economic growth here in Australia? That's what Anthony Albanese had to say in response to all this rubbish. Now, Albo is set to travel, of course, to the Pacific Islands Forum in Suva, Fiji tomorrow before returning to Australia on Friday. So he'll be gone for a couple of days. This forum will bring together leaders from 18 member nations, including New Zealand, the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea and uh, Tuvalu. As well as climate change action, regional security is set to be high on the agenda in the wake of China seeking to sign bilateral deals with several nations. Uh, Now, some say it's important countries in the region work closely together on security issues. Well, absolutely it is. Pacific security should come from within the Pacific region. The Pacific family should be looking for its security needs from the Pacific and only go outside uh, to other partners when they cannot be met. Anyway, the new government has previously criticised, of course, their predecessors for dropping the ball in the Pacific. The Prime Minister said since the election in May, he had sensed a feeling of relief from Pacific Islanders. Well, of course he has. You know, you've got to remember there was Peter Dutton and I think it was also, who was it? There was Spud, there was, was Scott Morrison there, he might have been, and also Tony Abbott. Last time they were together um, anywhere with anything to do with the Pacific Islands Forum, they joked, not knowing there was a microphone boom above their heads, they joked about water lapping the islands, for goodness sake. Anyway, um, look, I think it's high time we put all this rubbish behind us. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the new government needs to cement these relationships that I believe have fallen by the wayside over the last decade or so. You know, um, since the election, Albo has travelled to Japan, Indonesia, Spain, France and the Ukraine to meet world leaders, leaders and advance Australia's standing on the international stage. Pacific Minister Pat Conroy said implications of climate change, such as an increase in refugees fleeing from Pacific nations, would also be discussed at the summit. So it's a really important summit. Mr Conroy went on to say... This is a real challenge, and it's one where we're working hard to avoid climate change, where we can, uh, through our commitment to international action, where we can, through our commitment to international action. One of the aspects of climate change we're going to have to deal with is islands that are disappearing, and how we handle movement around that is a critical question into the future. Well, absolutely. It's far better than joking about it like the last mob. Marcus Paul in the morning. Wednesday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning, and of course, it's all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. You can check them out online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. 
It is the 12th day of July. Well, a story yesterday in The Guardian said that more women than men voted against Scott Morrison's government in in the federal election, according to polling. Uh, well, come on. I think we knew that, didn't we? Anyway, uh, it's official now uh, with some new figures out. More women than men voted against the Morrison government and women have continued to drift from the coalition since the election, according to a new poll. Just 30% of women cast their first preference for the coalition at the May election, compared with 37% of men, an exit poll of 1,400-odd voters conducted for the Australian Institute on the evening of May 21st found... A second poll in mid-June found the gender gap had widened to 10 points, with 28% of women saying they would vote for the coalition compared to 38% of male voters. Now, the poll asked about the coalition's handling of key issues with aged care, the treatment of women in politics, and the failure to legislate an integrity commission rated as the three biggest weaknesses. The Coalition's handling of aged care and treatment of women in politics were rated as weaknesses by about two-thirds of voters, 67%, and just 12% rated aged care as a strength, as 9% did for the treatment of women. Doesn't say much for the old government. Women were particularly concerned about aged care, with nearly 70% rating it a weakness for the coalition compared with 65% of men. Now, both genders mark the coalition down for treatment of women, of course. Around 60% of voters rated the following be weaknesses, failure to legislate a National Integrity Commission, uh, the then Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, of course, handling of the bushfires, floods and other natural disasters, along with the cost of living, and the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison. It's not good reading. Um, No wonder they got turfed out. The controversy over transgender women competing in sport, which dominated the early part of the campaign due to Liberal candidate for Warringah Catherine Deeb's advocacy against trans inclusion, was either a negative or a non-issue for voters. Yeah, it was a non-issue. I was stupid. Around 45% rated it a coalition weakness, while 42% it was neither a weakness nor a strength. Now, the Coalition's signature policy to allow first-home buyers to dip into their superannuation to pay for a home deposit, well, that produced mixed reviews, with 44% labelling it a weakness, 27% a strength, and 29% saying neither. The Liberal leader, Peter Dutton, has recommitted to the policy after the defeat, but Labor's campaign director, Paul Erickson, said they struggled to find a friend for it in their polling on the issue. The Coalition got a few more plaudits, though, for its handling of the COVID pandemic, which 30% of respondents thought was positive, but this was still outnumbered by the 48% who said it was a weakness. Now, similarly, the Stage 3 income tax cuts, which had bipartisan support from Labor, was rated as a strength by 29% of voters, compared with 38 who said it was a weakness. All right, well, in June, the Australian National University and researchers at the Comparative Study of Electoral Systems released results showing that women under 55s and those with higher levels of education drove Labor and Anthony Albanese's victory over the Morrison government at the May 21st election. Speaking at the National Press Club in June, Ericsson rated ignoring women's experiences as one of the eight most influential factors that drove the coalition defeat. Now, Mr Ericsson said Labor had assembled a broad coalition of voters, including winning full-time workers, 
pay for educated voters, renters and mortgage holders in low-income households earning less than 50 grand a year, and in medium and in, uh, medium income households earning between 50 and $100,000 a year. During the campaign, the ANU poll found that reducing the cost of living and fixing the aged care system were voters' top two priorities. Well, no surprises there. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul. Yeah, thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. This is Marcus Paul in the morning on this Wednesday. And one of our good friends on the program is the Animal Justice Party's New South Wales MP, Emma Hurst. Well, Emma's had a bit of a win in the last 24 hours. Uh, there's relief at a jail sentence for the torture of a dog. Now, a mobile petting zoo owner who fatally wounded a dog with a pitchfork and mallet has been sentenced to at least two years in jail for the brutal and barbaric attack. Now, yesterday, Magistrate David Degnan ordered that Sydney man Daniel Brighton, age 33, spend a maximum of 38 months behind bars for his cruel attack on a bull terrier at 3am back on January the 14th, 2016. So this thing's been going on a while. Now, Brighton stabbed the dog around six times with a pitchfork after it entered his property at Minto Heights with another dog and injured his camel, Alice. Now, he later hung the injured dog by its leash from a tree and hit it between six and eight times with a mallet. Nasty. It was a particularly brutal and barbaric attack upon uh, not necessarily an innocent animal, but by the time the attacks occurred, there was no need for the offending and he was acting in retributional vengeance, the magistrate said in Campbelltown local court yesterday. Now, he found Brighton guilty of serious acts of cruelty toward an animal with the intention to cause severe pain and with the intention to kill. At a prior hearing, the court heard from a zoo employee who said the dog was submissive after Brighton captured it. She urged him to contact the police who could find the animal's owner and hold them responsible for the attack on Alice, Alice the camel, of course. Now, after piercing the dog's side with the pitchfork, jeez, it's an awful story, isn't it? Brighton went to get medicine to treat his camel after treating Alice, the camel, he moved the dog to find it was still alive, deciding to hang it from the tree and bludgeon it with a mallet. I'll make sure it's dead, he said, as he swung the mallet like a baseball bat. What an asshole! Now, Mr Degnan rejected submissions that Brighton had no other way to kill the animal, saying that if he wished to humanely euthanise it, his lengthy background in animal care and welfare gave him the experience to do so. The magistrate said because of his feelings of anger and retribution, he intentionally wanted to inflict severe pain on the dog. Now, expert veterinary evidence given after the autopsy of the dog found it had most likely died as a result of asphyxiation after being hung from its neck by the leash. Brighton had also shown no remorse or contrition for the attack, the court found, he appeared to show no emotion as he was led out of the court by police officers. Now, speaking after the sentencing, Emma Hurst, MLC for the Animal Justice Party in New South Wales, expressed relief that there was jail time imposed for what she called an absolute act of animal cruelty. 
We need to make sure that acts of cruelty that are this extreme are taken very seriously in courts, and we've seen that happen today. Uh, Emma went on to say she was mortified that Brighton was still able to acquire multiple new animals even after being charged. She said there are still enormous gaps in our legislation that really require urgent attention. In June 2019, Brighton was jailed for a maximum term of three years and four months. This was quashed in the Court of Criminal Appeal, which sent the case back for a retrial. He filed a further appeal of Mr Degnan's guilty verdict in March this year, an appeal which now includes his sentencing. His lawyers will apply to release him from prison while that appeal is on foot. Oh, dear. If Brighton's application to walk free from prison and his appeal both fail, he will finally be eligible for parole on July the 10th in 2024. Yeah, well, I think this bloke should probably be cooling his heels for at least another year or two behind bars. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. It's uh, Tuesday and it's great to have your company. The 12th day of July. Uh, Now, even though the rain seemed to have moved away, thank goodness, and we've got some sunshine over the next few days at least, we still have problems uh, as a result of the recent floods. Now, in the Hawkesbury, we've got a home that's slipped into a sinkhole, and there's also problems with a raging surf that's claimed a life. Anyway, uh, the story is Raging Surf has claimed a life, and a sinkhole in the Hawkesbury is on the cusp of claiming a home. Dear, oh dearie me, this, did you see it on the news last night, this gigantic sinkhole? It's become the stuff of nightmares for Richmond Lowlands homeowners after it devoured parts of their house yesterday. The sinkhole developed as a result of the recent torrential rainfall and floods that have bombarded the state, consequently swallowing sections of the home that borders the Hawkesbury River. Uh, the residents are among thousands that have the daunting task of another post-flood clean-up following last week's wild weather disaster. Meanwhile, unfortunately, one person has died and two others were seriously injured along the New South Wales coastline as the relentless waves and wind continue to eat into our beaches. A rock fisherman was swept out to sea at the popular Wollongong Harbour. You know, that's a pretty big harbour and normally you'd consider it fairly safe. It's fairly sheltered there, but... With the recent uh, awful weather, uh, perhaps it could be argued the bloke should not have been there. Well, there were uh, warnings, of course, for very dangerous conditions in the surf. And despite a uh, constable's heroic efforts, this 73-year-old man couldn't be saved and he died at the scene in the Illawarra. The actions of the young constable were heroic, according to Acting Inspector Kelly Zorn. Uh, Thank goodness he could swim well. It was quite a feat, given the huge swell. It didn't. Uh, he didn't hesitate to go in to help. Well, I mean, that's what first responders do, and we thank them for that. It all comes as two people narrowly also avoided death after being swept off a break wall at Newcastle's Nobby's Beach. Uh, the victims, a man in his 50s and a woman in her 40s, were able to clamber their way up to rocks uh, to safety, but they did sustain serious injuries. Uh, Inspector Jake Broughton Rouse said the incident should be a warning to locals as the hazardous surf, hazardous surf conditions continued along the coast. Uh, Inspector 
Broughton Rouse said, this is a reminder for people to remain safe and vigilant around the water, especially when there are dangerous surf conditions. Our patients today are extremely lucky to be alive. Well, of course, the recent East Coast low that has bombarded the state's coastline with heavy rains, floods and rough swells are leaving some popular Sydney beaches almost unrecognisable. Sand from Coogee Beach was pushed onto the boardwalk and uncovered never-before-seen rocks in the southern corner of the bay and pylons from the historic pier that were controversially removed by the local council. Coogee local and member of the surf club, Phil Kite, said it's not uncommon for Coogee to lose sand during the colder seasons, but he'd never seen it so severe as this. He said, we normally have those winter storms that mess up the beach and move the sand around, but I've never seen those rocks in the south exposed like this before. Ramwick City Council's Facebook page was filled with messages after they posted an update on the storm-affected beaches. Among them was Anthony Gretsch, who wasn't surprised to see the rocks. Where the sand dunes once were, nature is doing its thing, he wrote. A similar course of events is taking place at neighbouring Maroubra Beach, where the once sand-smothered north end is now a rocky canyon. Wow, I'm looking, I've swum at Maroubra a few times. I'm having a look at the picture. I've never seen those rocks before. Anyway, this issue, this problem, extends past Sydney's eastern beaches, with Cronulla experiencing problems of its own. The Sutherland Shire Council will use a crane to remove the North Cronulla Lifeguard Tower, which apparently is on the brink of collapse. This is after the beach was washed away in big swell and tides over the weekend. Now, earlier yesterday, daring surfers ignored weather warnings by tackling the dangerous swell at Sydney's most notorious surf spot, Dead Man's, which is near Manly Beach. Several boards were scattered among the massive swell that has thrashed the east coast over the weekend and is expected to continue at least until Thursday. Look, it's only for experienced boardies only. There's no doubt about that, and I don't want to be reading to you that we've lost another life. An east coast low near New Zealand continues to generate dangerous swells across the coast with waves up to four metres in Sydney recorded over the weekend. Swimmers, surfers and fishers are being urged to stay out of the water with a hazardous surf warning in force uh, for Byron, Coffs, Macquarie, Hunter, Sydney, Illawarra, Batemans and Eden coasts. The warning will remain in place until at least... Today or this afternoon for Byron, Coffs, Macquarie and the Hunter Coast. So don't say you haven't been warned, all right? Uh, as far as the weather's concerned, pleasant conditions and sunshine will set the mood for the rest of Sydney this week, thank goodness. That will aid flood recovery efforts. They'll continue after a week of devastating deluges. Residents in Western Sydney and the Hunter region can finally breathe uh, a very uh, there will be a, a very low chance of showers and mild temperatures in the high teens throughout this week and into the weekend. Still cold though, isn't it? Definitely is still cold. Look, we might have a couple of uh, showers around the coastal fringe a little later in the week, but otherwise it should be okay. Chilly though, 16 to 7 degrees, 16 to 17 degrees, I should say. Yeah, pretty much like the uh, the winter temperatures we expect but without the deluge we've been getting. Marcus Paul in the morning.
Yeah, nice to have your company. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Tuesday, all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Get online, you can check out their services, and over the coming weeks we'll talk more about them. PsychologyServiceNewSouthWales.com.au Well, I read yesterday that Western Sydney is in the midst of a cost-of-living emergency, with Fowler's MP demanding an extension on a cut fuel levy while slamming PM staffing cuts for crossbenchers. Okay. Well, Western Sydney, we're told, is in the grips of a cost-of-living emergency. That's according to the independent MP, Di Lee. Uh, She, of course, beat Christina Keneally uh, to that seat at the recent election. She says her first act as the newly elected representative for Fowler will be to write to the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, to demand that a cut to the fuel levy be extended beyond September. Yeah, well, I don't know whether that'll get past the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. Anyway, Miss Lee said in an interview with the Daily Telegraph yesterday, low wages and high costs for fuel, food and interest rates are causing pressure at the dining table on people's commute to work and in people's homes. Well, I can't argue with that. It's true. I want this to be the number one priority and for the government to step up and do what government's were put there to do. I will call on the Prime Minister to extend the fuel levy and invite him to come out to our community to see the cost of living pressures people are living under. Well, we know that former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg cut the federal fuel excise levy from 44.2 to 22.1 cents a litre last March, but the six-month reprieve is due to expire on September the 28th. The call for extended relief comes as the latest SEC Newgate Mood of the Nation report found that 68% of Australians rated the cost of living as extremely important, 68%, with climate change and the shift to renewables coming in at the 14th most important issue, according to those surveyed. Well, I mean, of course, cost of living pressures would come in at number one. Now, Miss Lee, who is the only independent in Western Sydney, also said she was disappointed by the government's decision to cut the number of staffers allocated to crossbench MPs from four to one. She's echoed the criticisms made by so-called teal independents like Zali Stegel. Now, Miss Lee said that the move goes against what the Prime Minister said about this being a respectful parliament. Now, she went on to say, excuse me, the decision really hurts our ability to go through legislation. It really ties our hands in terms of being able to offer feedback and amendments to what the government is proposing. She said also, noting that Attorney-General Mark Butler had reached out to her about promised anti-corruption laws. Miss Lee, who defeated Christina Keneally in one of the most brutal contests of this year's election, also said that the ALP only had itself to blame for parachuting in a candidate with no links to the community. Uh, She said Labor must not lose sight of the fact that they put in someone not connected with Fowler and who does not understand us or has been through challenges that we've been through. Well, as I've said before, it's a bloody long way between Cabramatta Creek and Scotland Island. Anyway, meanwhile, the government, of course, says that it has no plans to extend the fuel tax levy cut. Yesterday, Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek said the restoration of the original excise was always a temporary measure, but she defended the government's cost-of-living response. 
Now, Miss Plibersek told Sevens Sunrise yesterday, we do need to take the pressure off families with the cost of living, so we're making childcare cheaper. We're investing in cheaper, cleaner renewable energy so that over time power bills will come down. Yeah, but what about in the immediate future? Yeah, it's going to be a tough job, make no doubts about that, for not only Tanya Plibersek, but of course the Anthony Albanese government. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning, all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Check them out online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Now, you recall yesterday on the program I spoke to you about how magistrates were finally getting tough on um, re-offending drink drivers. Well, here's another high-range drink driving story. A man has pleaded guilty to high-range drink driving in the Southern Tablelands while on probation for punching a former partner in the head and causing pain and bruising to her eye. This bloke, his name is Nathan Langdon, he's 32, he appeared at Goulburn Local Court last week on four charges including a high-range PCA, driving while suspended and using an unregistered and uninsured motor vehicle. Wow. He's gone the whole trifecta and more there. According to the documents tendered to court, on May the 27th, the Goulburn man told police he drank 20 full-strength stubbies of Carlton Dry at a joint called the Gordon Hotel, and he finished uh, downing his drinks by around 9.30 at night. Then on the same day, at almost midnight, documents state he was stopped by police in his grey Holden cruise on the cross-section of Long Street and Lawford Lane because they noticed his registration had expired in March. Maybe he shouldn't have drunk so much and used the money for his rego. Anyway, they asked for his licence, which he said he didn't have on him, and after a roadside breath test, which read 0.221, he was placed under arrest at Goulburn Police Station for a breath analysis. Now, documents state his secondary reading was 0.187. Now, further checks, of course, by police revealed that his licence was suspended from a fine and not current and active like Langdon had earlier suggested. When they brought this up with him at the station, he confessed the truth. According to documents, the hatchback he had driven was also unregistered for more than 15 days and police returned the plates to service New South Wales. He was then charged for the matters before the court. Now, Magistrate Geraldine Beattie called the offences very serious and pointed out he committed them while on probation for domestic violence charges. I note you're subject to two domestic violence orders and they need to be called up because you've breached them by doing this. The magistrate Beatty said Langdon was then sentenced to a 15-month community corrections order. Well, he's lucky he's not spending time in jail. Anyway, um, he is on probation for all of these matters until February the 8th next year. Now, the current issue... Uh, has been adjourned to August the 17th for a further sentence, and I suspect that perhaps this bloke might be heading for the lockup. I mean, there's a jail in Goulburn, isn't there, for repeat driving offenders? Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning. We're here thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Check them out online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. You don't need me telling you that every home should have a working 
smoke alarm. It goes without saying, and unfortunately, there are many joints uh, around, uh, whether they're rented or home-owned, that don't, and I don't quite understand it because, tragically, far too many people lose their lives around this time each year from, well, home fires. And sadly, a man and a woman have died in two separate unit fires that happened in Sydney in the 24 hours to last night, one in Parramatta, the other in Dulwich Hill. So, the two separate fires in Sydney's west and inner west have shocked Sydney. And there's no doubt these two fatalities perhaps could have been avoided. Uh, They resulted from two separate fire incidents less than seven hours apart in different units located in Sydney's west and inner west on Monday morning, yesterday morning, just before 2.45am in the morning. Yesterday, emergency services rescued two men aged 20 and 27 from a single-bedroom unit on the third floor of a larger blonde brick complex opposite Westfield Shopping Centre, and it was well alight. I saw the uh, the vision of it last night. The 20-year-old was rescued off the unit balcony, and uh, we could see uh, somebody filming that person with a, uh, a mobile phone. He was waving something around, hoping to be rescued. Well, he was, thank goodness. He was treated for smoke inhalation before being transported to Westmead Hospital in a stable condition. But a 27-year-old was pulled from the unit unconscious and given CPR on a landing of the stairs before being taken to Westmead Hospital in a critical condition. But unfortunately, he passed away in hospital just after 5 o'clock in the morning. The victim is believed to be an Indian national who was living in Australia where he was studying and working as an Uber delivery driver. Five Road New South Wales Ambo crews and a critical care team were in attendance. Parramatta Crime Manager Detective Chief Inspector Thomas Barnes said he did not believe the men were related but were flatmates. He said the man's family and the consulate had been contacted Now, a neighbour who did not wish to be named said the victim and the survivor were quiet but friendly. They were nice. We always say hi to our neighbours. It's really shocking for everybody. Meanwhile, in Sydney's inner west, fire and rescue New South Wales crews were called to an apartment on Denison Road in Dulwich Hill at around 9.30 in the morning to extinguish another fire. When they got there, the two fireys managed to put out the small blaze using handheld fire extinguishers, but found, unfortunately, the body of a deceased woman while doing so. Police from the inner west, they established a crime scene and they're investigating the cause of the fire. Inner West PAC officer Nathan Vetter said the incident was not currently being treated as suspicious. Now, fire and rescue crews were called around 9.30 after neighbours in the building noticed smoke. Uh, They got there. Uh, There were 30 firefighters. I mean, they all battled to save the man and contain the blaze. Now, the cause of the fire is being determined and the possible absence of smoke alarms was being investigated. Yeah, look, I mean, I saw last night that uh, on the news reports that uh, these fires... Um, even though, obviously, they need to look into the cause of them, uh, the properties did not have working smoke alarms. You've got to have a working smoke alarm. There's no two ways about it. Okay, um, well, look, later yesterday morning, Fire and Rescue New South Wales crews were actually door knocking on units of other nearby homes to ensure that residents had working smoke alarms. 
An accelerant detector dog was also at the site with investigators who swarmed the unit block. Resident Susan Cherry was evacuated from a unit on the third floor, which uh, they've lived in a year, uh, telling uh, reporters yesterday that it was scary because there was smoke uh, and the bottom of the floor was hot. Mm. Anyway, there'll be a report prepared for the information of the coroner on both of these incidents. Now, of course, um, we do have uh, two people now deceased, a man and a woman, and uh, both being investigated by New South Wales Police, but there is a, a warning to everybody to ensure that they have a working smoke alarm in their homes this winter or at all times. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, well, that's it for today's program. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, maybe you've done it on starterfm.com.au. Maybe you're on the iHeartRadio app or tune in. Thank you for being a part of the program. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow right around Australia to do it all again. The latest news and your views. So don't forget, plenty of uh, opportunity to have your say on the stories we've mentioned and more that will be posted up today on the Facebook page. Give it a follow. Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook. All thanks to, of course, Psychology Services New South Wales. Check them out online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Have a good day. Stay safe. Uh, Remember um, that message from this morning's program, uh, given, unfortunately, that we've seen two more fatalities from fires in homes around Sydney in the last 24 hours. Please ensure that your place has a working fire alarm. It'll save your life or the life of someone you love, whether it be a pet or somebody else. Important, really important. Um, Okay, uh, if you missed my chat this morning with Daniel Mookie on that uh, sensational um, evidence provided at the Upper House Inquiry into the job uh, taken by John Barillaro and then given back, and how did he get it, and there's all sorts of shenanigans going on in the New South Wales government Uh, There's a fair bit of uh, hiding, I think, the truth. Anyway, eventually this upper house inquiry will hopefully get to the bottom of it, but uh, the allegations made yesterday on Macquarie Street were quite shocking. Anyway, Daniel spoke to me about it this morning, and if you missed that interview, it'll be in the podcast, okay, so you can check it out. Uh, Maybe you're listening to the podcast already. Anyway. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9 right around Australia. It's great to have your company then. Marcus Paul in the morning. Bye for now. You ain't heard nothing yet. Marcus Paul. All right, goody, goody. This will get you to the goody. This will get you to the goody.